Last week, we began exploring the halachic process. Specifically, we focus on the three main factors that poskim bring to bear when they formulate what we call the most plausible halachic position. First, they bring into account their independent analysis of the canonical sources. Second, they then see what previous authorities have said about the given topic. And the third thing they gauge is the custom, the lived practice of the halacha in question within the halachic community. Based on those three factors and how they weigh them against each other, they formulate the most plausible interpretation of the halachic sugya. And under normal circumstances, once they have that theoretical position, and then they go through the complicated process of applying the theory to practice, they rule in accordance with the most plausible interpretation of the sugya as they see it. However, as we noted last week, there is a halachic category that must be examined both philosophically and legally, that calls into question this process. And that is the notion introduced in several places in Shas and is found all throughout halakhic literature, which is that while normally we follow the most plausible position or the majority position or the position that, according to normal halakhic rules, should be indeed followed, under extenuating circumstances, it is legitimate to follow minority positions, it's legitimate to follow less plausible positions, um, and the question is, how does this work, and why does it work? Now, at first glance, it really doesn't make sense. Even if we assume that halacha, as we noted last week, is not like mathematics, and it's very hard to determine the answer in a way that would be true with 100% certitude, or one could be assured that of the truth of it with 100% certitude, still, as we noted, halacha is, in a certain sense, like a science, and we would hope that the posseik would approach the question that he is discussing with objectivity. And therefore, we would expect that whatever the most plausible answer to the halacha question is, that would be what he would follow. What legitimates following an answer that's less plausible? Rav Lechenstein, um, in an article about humanism in Halacha, noted that if you look in Catholic literature, for example, in Catholic literature you will find that certain thinkers articulate the fact that if one believes that the will of God as expressed in the Bible um, is in fact the truth, then one should follow it no matter what. And the notion that one could bend the straightforward understanding of what God wants, or in this case, what God wants as mediated through the halachic process, because of extenuating circumstances, seems to not make sense, especially if one understands that anything that God desires and is expressed through the Torah um, is of infinite value. Because then no matter what the extenuating circumstances are, they shouldn't weigh up against the infinite value of following the Torah. As an example, he gave the following quote from John Henry Newman. And this is a quote which is found in lectures on certain difficulties felt by Anglicans in submitting to the Catholic Church. Newman writes as follows, The Catholic Church holds it better for the sun and moon to drop from heaven, for the earth to fail, and for all the many millions who are upon it to die of starvation and extremist agony, as far as temporal affliction goes, than that one soul, I will not say should be lost, but should commit one venial sin, 
should tell one willful untruth, though it harmed no one, or should steal one poor farthing without excuse. And Rav Lachensi notes that the feeling expressed, or the intuition expressed by Newman, at some level, should logically have been the approach that we take to halacha. Because again, if the Torah is of infinite value, and we believe, let's say, that the reward in Olam Haba, as the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot notes, is inf- a moment in Olam Haba is infinitely more enjoyable than anything that happens in this world, then it doesn't really ha- matter what the circumstances are that would make you want to rule in a different way than one would under normal circumstances, than one would in a vacuum, because no circumstances could possibly weigh up against the infinite value of following the Torah. But the fact is that this is not the case. <coughs> the Gemara, and in fact the Mishnah, meaning Chazal themselves, are the ones that introduced this notion that halacha works differently under extenuating circumstances. So to prove this point, let's look at two sources. If you look at the Mishnah Adiot in the first parak, Mishnah Hay and Vav, the Mishnah there records a dispute between the Chachamim and Rabbi Yehuda as to why minority positions are even recorded. Because as we know, and the, the exact details of this we will return to, but in general, the rule in Psak is that you follow Rove, you follow the majority. So if that's the case, so once the majority has ruled on a halachic position, why should you even bother mentioning the minority position? So the Mishnah writes, Why do you bother recording the position of an individual against the majority? If the law follows the majority. So the Gemara gives two posi- the Mishnah rather gives two positions, that of the Chachamim and that of Rabbi Yehuda, that of the Tanakhama and that of Rabbi Yehuda. Sheim yireh beidin et divrei yachid v'yismoch alav shein beidin yachol levatel divrei beidin chaverau ad sheyeh gadol mimenu bechokma uviminyan. So the first position is to tell you that it's to keep that position alive, such that. A future court, if it wants to, can rely on this uh, this single position. Rabbi Yehuda, on the other hand, says, "Amr Rabbi Yehuda imkain lama maskir and divrei yachid bein merubin levatla shim yomara adam kach ani mekubal yomar lo kedivrei ish ploni shamata." Yehuda says, "No, the reason that we mention the minority position." is to ensure that no one ever follows it. Because in the future, it might be that someone who had heard the original machloket will remember the minority position, and if you don't record it, they will think that that was the majority position. Shabuta says we mention minority positions to utterly reject them. Now, Rebuhuda's position follows the a purer logic, meaning one that is more easily understood. Namely, if there are rules in halacha, Namely, one must follow the majority. So then, once the halacha has been decided, the minority position is dead. And the only reason that one might ever want to quote it is in order to ensure that it remains rejected and that the true halachic position, meaning that which was recorded by the majority, is the one that will be followed. However, the position of the Tanakama is more surprising because what the Tanakama tells you is that despite the fact that 
that the rule is that we normally follow Rove, that we follow the majority, it is legitimate and perhaps expected that at least under some, in some cases, a future Beit Din will want to rely on the minority position. Now this Mishnah already begins to help us understand why it might be that it's legitimate to follow minority positions. Because while Rabbi Huda thinks that the rule of Rove makes it that the minority position is dead, and we only record the position in order to ensure that it never be followed, the Chachamim tell you that it's not true. That just because something in one generation is rejected, because it's the minority position, it isn't really dead. It isn't out of the conversation. And this already begins to indicate that there is legitimacy to following positions which, at least at a given time, are not the halachic position. The more explicit source, however, is the Mishnah Nida, is the Gemara Nida, rather. The Gemara Nida Daftet tells you as follows. Um, it's discussing a particular halachic case, which we don't need to get into at the moment, but it says as follows, Tanu Rabbanan Ma'aseh Vasa Rebbe Kirebi Eliezer. There was a machloket, and Rebbe Eliezer was ruled against. But once it happened that Rebbe followed the position of Rebbe Eliezer. But once he remembered it, so now what is he to do? Is he supposed to reverse his halachic position? So he wrote, or he said, It's not a problem. I am allowed to follow the position of Rabbi Eliezer under extenuating circumstances. Now the Gemara says, What does it mean that he remembered? What indeed did he remember? If he remembered that the halacha is not like Rabbi Eliezer, conclusively, but rather like the Rabbanan, then who cares that it's extenuating circumstances? How could he follow him? So the Gemara says, Ella dilo itmar hilcheta, lo kemar velo kemar. The halacha was not absolutely accorded, uh, ruled in accordance with either position. Umay laachar shenizkar. So then what did he remember? Laachar shenizkar delav yachid paligale. Ella rabim paligale. Once he remembered that Rabbi Lezer was, it was not Rabbi Lezer versus one other rabbi, but rather it was Rabbi Lezer against the Rabbim, against the majority. And therefore, by normal halachic rules, one should rely on the majority and not the minority position, not the individual position. Amar, so he said, it's true. In brackets, I'll put this. It's true that under normal circumstances, I should have followed the, minor- the majority. But, Rabbi Eliezer is worthy of being relied on under extenuating circumstances. And here... The Gemara tells you even more clearly the following. That while it is true that normally one must follow the majority, there are circumstances under which it is legitimate to follow the position that in a vacuum, in an ideal halachic world, shall we say, it is legitimate to not follow that position and rather follow a position that was rejected. However, there is a qualification. And the Mishnah says, just because some positions are live under extenuating circumstances, it doesn't mean that all positions are legitimate under extenuating circumstances. 
Therefore, the Gemara says, that had it been that he knew that the halacha was decisively not like Rebbe Eliezer, then even under extenuating circumstances, it would not have been legitimate to follow him. It's only because he remembered that he was a minority, but not absolutely rejected position, that he ruled that under normal circumstances one would follow the Rabim, the Chachamim, and not Rebbe Eliezer, but under extenuating circumstances, since he was the rejected, but not absolutely rejected position, it would be legitimate to follow him. And this sets up procedurally when it is legitimate for Poskim to follow major- minority positions. And here I will extrapolate a bit, because while the Mishnah in ADO that we saw and the Gemara both refer specifically to cases of following a Yachid against a Rapim, the same general contours of this argument um, can be found in Poskim even if the question is not following minority versus majority, but following less plausible positions against more plausible positions, because essentially what the Gemara here is introducing, though obviously one must introduce nuance into each case, but the general principle that the Gemara is introducing is that while normally one must follow the most plausible position, which in this Gemara is the position of the Rabbim, the one that follows the normal halachic rules in a vacuum, And there are positions which are absolutely rejected, which are false, in which case there's nothing that you can ever do to rely on those positions within normative halakha, though in parentheses I will say, with the possible exception of the cases in which it is legitimate for Chazal to uproot the halakha, of akirat davar Torah, but that is already working sort of from from outside of the system, so we'll have to bracket that for the moment. But besides for the position that's the most plausible that we follow normally, and the position that we absolutely reject, reject, there are positions that are live enough that under extenuating circumstances, they are allowed to be relied on. So there are two questions that we must ask here. One is, I think, the meta question, is the philosophical question, or the question of jurisprudence here, which is, (coughs) why is this legitimate? Why is this true? If, in fact, it is the case that the Torah is the will of God, so, as Rav Luchansin put it, why isn't Newman correct? Why isn't it that once we've decided the halacha, we must follow the most plausible position, no matter what happens? What legitimates following minority or less plausible positions? Now, Rav Luchansin notes that the only possible answer to this question is that halacha itself allows for it. The only way to justify following minority positions, or less plausible positions, is to say that the halacha itself allows it, and therefore this too is the will of God. If this too is the will of God, then obviously you can rely on it in extenuating circumstances. But that only pushes us one step further, which is, but what does that mean? Why is it that more than one answer can be active or can be in play or can be legitimate? Again, we're not talking here about machloket. We're not talking about one posig saying usr, one posig saying mutter. That is also something that must be understood, but this is even more problematic. This is a posig approaching a sugya where he has already determined the answer which he deems most plausible. And halacha itself tells him that if there are pressing 
needs, their pressing factors, he is allowed to rule differently, rely on minority positions, rely on less likely understandings of the sugya. Why is this legitimate? So, here, we can talk about several possibilities. One is to introduce a philosophical understanding of halachic pluralism, to argue that it's not, in fact, the case that there is only one halachic answer. Perhaps, even in Shamayim, there are more than one answer. Now, while every given posek is required to rule in accordance with the way he sees the sugya and he understands the unfolding of the halachic process, in truth, there are multiple answers in Shamayim. And a, this is one way of reading the famed Gemara in Eruvin, which says that both the position of Beit Hillel and both and the position of Beit Shammai are divrei elokim chayim elu ve'elu divrei elokim chayim. Both of these are either the living words of God or the words of the living God. But at some level, both of these are true. Not just valuable, but true. Similarly, the Gemara in Chagiga Daf Gimel writes as follows: Balei Asufot, the masters of assemblies. Who are these people? <laughs> These are those scholars who sit and they study Torah in groups. Some deem it impure, some pure. Some forbid, some permit. Some invalidate and some validate. So maybe someone will say, how can I now learn Torah? They were all given from one shepherd. One God gave them, one leader said them. They come from God. And a radical interpretation of this Gemara would be that even in Shamayim, there are multiple halachic possibilities. And therefore, again, while one under normal circumstances must follow the most plausible position, the rejected position is not untrue, it's just, shall we say, less true, or less accepted. But it has real truth in Shamayim. It's one of those other answers that floats around in heaven. If that's the case then perhaps that's why it's legitimate to rely on these minority positions, or these somewhat rejected positions, under extenuating circumstances, because they are not, in fact, dead. The Ritvas is perhaps the most extreme expression of this um, in the Rishonim, and he quotes from the Rabbanit Tzarfat, and he writes, Heich Evshar, this is on the passage of Elu Elu Chayim. He says, How could it be that these forbidden, these permit? And he says, Because when Moshe went up to heaven, they showed him for every question 49 ways to permit and 49 ways to forbid. So Moshe was as boggled as anyone else might be and asked God, how could it be? Isn't there one truth? God said, no, it's okay. There are different possibilities and I give it over to the sages to determine in each generation. So one possible way of understanding 
why it is legitimate to rely on minority positions, is that again, while normally a posaic must follow the most plausible interpretation, that's not because the most plausible interpretation is assumed to be the one and only truth. The less plausible position, or the minority position, also contains within it real objective truth, and therefore it is live and can be invoked when necessary. And this is essentially the, the direction that Rav takes to philosophically justify um, the notion of psikat halacha b'shat hatchak. Um, and he writes, the opportunity is provided by a, pluralis- by a pluralistic conception of halacha. <coughs> so long as halacha is defined in purely monistic terms, every text being subject to only one correct interpretation, and every problem amenable to only one solution, it is difficult to justify such a leniency. However, the rabbis interpreted halacha in somewhat more flexible terms. And therefore, Avlachonsin argues that indeed it is this notion of halachic pluralism, this belief that there is more than one truth, or truth is contained even in the rejected answers, that allows for leniency under extenuating circumstances. And that is why Newman is incorrect. Despite the fact that the Torah is of infinite value, it is not a rejection of the infinite to follow the less plausible position, because that too is a reflection of the will of God. Um, however, Rabbi Michael Rosenzweig has noted in his article, Elu Ve'elu Dirve'elu Kim Chayim, Halachic Pluralism and Theories of Controversy, that this is not so simple. Because even if one accepts the pluralistic view of halacha, namely that each view actually contains absolute truth, ultimate truth, in Shamayim, um, that does not mean that later positions, even if they were theoretical, theoretical possibilities to be the halakha, it doesn't mean that those positions remain live. Um, and the reason, he argues, is as follows. Because, ironically, if you believe that from God's perspective there were multiple possibilities of what the halakha could be, and what determines it is the halakhic process, then once the halakhic process has determined what the answer should be, it's not obvious that the other position should be accepted. Because if what makes something binding is the choice of poskim to rule in accordance with it, then it's possible that something which, in a theoretical wor- world, could have been halacha, due to the fact that procedurally it has been rejected by the poskim, that could have made it absolutely rejected. And therefore, simply arguing that there are multiple truths in halacha, multiple potential truths that is insufficient to warrant relying on the minority position. Because one could have argued that once something has been rejected, it's been absolutely rejected. Rather, it must be that perhaps the reason that we're allowed to rely on minority positions is simply because they aren't even procedurally rejected 100%. As we noted at the beginning, the Gemara has two categories of, of rejected positions. Those that are indeed absolutely rejected, and those, the Gemara implies, that one can never follow no matter what. It's just that there are these middle positions which even procedurally, regardless of what's happening in Shamayim, 
have not been totally rejected. And that is why it is legitimate to follow them under non-extenuating circumstances. Because the procedure of halacha has not in fact rejected them completely. Now, now is not the time to get in to the full question of Elu Velu Divelu Kim Chayim, but I will note that while Rav Luchenstein, in his understanding of Psikara Lacha B'Shadat prefers the more pluralistic model presented by the Ritva, many, many authorities did not understand Elu Velu Divelu Kim Chayim in this way, and in fact felt that there was one view um, in, as it were, the Beit Din in heaven even if it was legitimate to rely on positions that might, in a theoretical world, be incorrect, um, there is one view in heaven, and understood Elu ve'elu direlukim chayim in other ways, arguing that perhaps the, the incorrect views shed light on the proper view, or the fact that both positions were developed by people who were Yirei Shamayim and attempting to understand Varashem, therefore they are valuable, but not that they contain truth, um, but that is an issue for another time. But what we've said at this point is that one way of understanding the legitimacy of Psikara Lacha B'Sharat Chak is to say that Halacha actually has multiple right answers. Even if one has been procedurally chosen, the other one has truth in it and therefore can be relied on. The other is to note that it's actually the procedure of Halacha itself that gives it legitimacy, because halacha sometimes does reject positions such that they can never be relied on. It's the fact that halacha did not fully reject that position that it, it in fact, leaves it live. But how exactly does the Poseg then go about ruling in accordance with these positions? So Rav in that same article explains as follows. He writes that for an individual posaic, if in fact he would understand that a position has been completely rejected, or its plausibility is zero, then he would not be allowed to rely on the position at all. It's only because for the posaic himself that he feels that this position is a live position, either in a Lechensian formulation, because he thinks that, there are, that both positions contain truth, or simply because the procedure of halacha kept them both live, <clears throat> it's that which allows the posseh to rely on it when necessary. But, how exactly does he go about relying on it? And how pressing must the circumstances be, and how unlikely a position can he rely on? So here, to summarize Rulchanzin's position, and add a bit of my own perspective, it seems to be as follows. The Poseik has to weigh the following. How unlikely is the position I'm relying on, and how pressing is the, is the, are the circumstances, and therefore, how unlikely a position do they allow me to rely on? To give an example... Under normal circumstances, if someone told you, I want you to enter into a medical procedure that has a 50% chance of killing you, a normal healthy person would obviously not enter into that circumstance because his current chance of living is near 100%, but if he enters into the procedure, it now goes down to 50 On the other hand, 
if someone had a 90% chance of dying without the surgery, suddenly it seems much more legitimate and much more plausible for him to take the risk of entering into that surgery. The difference is not the danger. The difference is the alternative. How bad would it be if he chose not to rely on it? In halacha, I think the pressures are similar. What the posik is asking is, how unlikely is this position, and how bad would it be if I didn't avail myself of this minority position? If, for example, when one entered the sugya, one was 51% sure that a position was correct, but could almost, almost 49%, as it were, see the other side, it will take very little pressure for the posik to say, you know, I'm not really convinced of this position, I just think it's slightly more likely, but if there's compelling need to rely on the other position, so that's fine, and it wouldn't take much pressure. On the other hand, if a posig looked at a position and said, look, I'm 95% sure, or 90% sure, that this position is correct, and the minority position, or the less likely position, I can see as a possibility, but I'm, I would only give it a 10% weight, let's say. It's going to take a lot of pressure. For, for that posake to rely on that minority position. Um, and this is essentially the, the way Rebbe describes the process of Psikar Halacha B'Sharat Chak. A posake looks at the issue at hand and he asks, how unlikely is this minority position that I am now going to follow? And how under how much pressure am I to follow that position? And then he needs to make a calculation of does the pressure warrant following a position of this lower level plausibility. So to summarize what we've seen today, last week we noted that under normal circumstances, a POSIC will weigh the main three factors. Independent analysis of, of, of the canonical sources, what precedent has said about this sugya, and what cu- the custom has been, and generate what he sees as the most plausible halachic conclusion. Once he's done that, in a normal circumstance, he will follow that position. However, halacha itself recognizes that it is legitimate, either because minority positions contain absolute truth as well, or because simply the procedure of halacha chooses not to reject all positions absolutely, it is legitimate to rely on the less plausible minority positions under extenuating circumstances. And that is something built into the halacha itself. How unlikely the position has to be, and how pressing the circumstances have to be to warrant ruling differently than one would in a vacuum under these extenuating circumstances, depend on how unlikely the position is and how much pressure the posake is under and how much need the posake sees in ruling like the minority position. What we will see next week is what counts as a position that is still live because as we noted, the Gemara defines three types of positions, those that are accepted la those that are absolutely rejected, and those that are live enough to be invoked, so what does it mean for something to be absolutely rejected? And what does it mean for, be, for it to be in that middle category of live enough to be relied on under extenuating circumstances? And the second thing is to discuss what types of things 
count as extenuating circumstances? And can you only have them for leniency, which is probably what most people think of, or can there be extenuating circumstances that will push us in the direction of Chumrah, that will push us in the direction of stringency? And we'll return to that next week.